0: Hello listeners, welcome back to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries Unity in Christ program. If this is your first time listening, my name is Christine Kim and I am the host of this program. Are there any conditions needed in praising and worshiping God? If there were any needed, what would they be? To have the income to not worry about your daily needs, good health, a good family? What if all of these were taken away from us? Would we still be able to praise God? The hymn writer who wrote the lyrics of the hymn titled, Under His Wings, I Am Safely Abiding, William Cushing praised God no matter what situation he was in. Today, I would like to share with everyone about William Cushing. Cushing was born in 1823 in a small town called Hingham in Massachusetts. His parents believed in God but were Unitarians who did not believe that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit were one. Unitarians believed that God was the only God and believed that Jesus was no different than any other prophet. As Cushing starts to build his own faith by reading into the Word, he starts to realize that his parents' faith do not coincide with a word, and realize his parents' faith was unhealthy. This is when William Cushing starts his life of faith by believing in the Trinity, and from this point on, his life does not end and eventually leads him into seminary, ordained as a pastor. After being ordained and entering into the ministry, his first pastorate was in a city called Searsburg, New York. There he also met his wife and after his marriage, Cushing goes to minister and pastor a bigger church in Brooklyn and ministers for 10 years. We'll come back to share more about William Cushing after our first song. Great After meeting and marrying his wife, he ministers at a big church in Brooklyn for 10 years, but something unexpected happens. His wife was diagnosed with an unnamed disease and begins fighting against battle for her life. Her health only declines as time goes on and does not get any better. She lived to support her husband's ministry and did not take care of her health. There were times where the ministry was hard, but she never expressed her struggles and slowly became ill. Cushing took great pains watching his loving wife fight through her illness. He then decides that he is going to move his ministry back to Searsburg, where he first pastored and also met his wife. Just at that time, there was a church that invited him to pastor their church, and a few years later, after a long and brutal fight, his wife passes away. However, the sadness doesn't end here. As Pastor Cushing works to serve and keep up his ministry, Also while taking care of his sick wife, his health also declines without him knowing. He was constantly sick and soon after his vocal cords were damaged, and eventually he was not able to speak. A pastor who needs to spread the gospel but not being able to speak. Pastor Cushing truly felt it was his calling to spread the gospel. So not being able to talk was a great despair for him. Many people came by his side to support and comfort him, But losing his wife and his voice, there was nothing that could comfort him. Eventually, he had to leave the church he was pastoring. He could no longer find a reason to live and thought about committing suicide numerous times. Due to his great disappointment and despair, he started to pray to God with feelings of resentment. He would ask, God, where is your will? What was your reason for putting me into this world? You took away my loving wife. Please take away mine too. Please take away this useless body that can no longer talk. After losing all hope, living every day in despair one day, Cushing had a thought and he wondered, Until when do I have to live this kind of life? He wanted to know why God was putting these struggles into his life. He begins to search for God's will and asks him what he wants from him. And during this time, he realizes what was wrong in his life. Instead of seeking for the will of God, he assumed that God's will was where he thought things were good and lived by this. After realizing this about himself, he begins to repent and seek forgiveness from God. God hears his prayers and begins to comfort Cushing. Although his situations may not have changed, nor did his voice recover, but he slowly began to understand God's heart and begins to experience God's comfort and peace. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Remember Who You Are Part 1, based on 1 John 3, verse 1 through 12. I hope you have a blessed time as you join Pastor Mark Martin.
1: Well tonight we're continuing our Bible study in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Verse 1, just a little bit of review. It says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. It goes on to say in verse 2, Beloved, now we are the children of God. Someone once asked little Queen Elizabeth, Who are you, little girl? And she responded, Oh, I'm nobody, but my daddy's the king. You know, sometimes we feel like we're nobodies, but our daddy is the king. He's the king of the universe. He's the one who's created the whole world and everything that exists and gives life and breath to all things. And so though we may feel in some ways that we are zeros and nobodies, We have infinite value because we are now the children of God, because we have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what characterizes us as children of God? I think it's fair to look at the rest of the book as showing us the main characteristics of God's children, and we're going to look at what the characteristics are. I think as we look at verses uh, 3 through uh, 18, we see... That basically, well, actually, from here to the end of the book, we see basically that as we grow, what characterizes us as children of God is that as we grow, we become more and more like our daddy. That's that's the big, grand picture. You're just going to become more and more like your heavenly father. Like father, like child, is the way the relationship is with father in heaven. Verse 2 says, Beloved, Now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. We're going to be like him. We're going to grow up to be just like our daddy, our Abba. And you say, Daddy? How can you say that? Well, Jesus called Father in heaven, Daddy, on several occasions. He used the term Abba, Father. Maybe you've read that in the Bible, and you wonder, what is that all about? It's actually... The translators of our uh, text, our Bibles that we read, just transliterated a, a Hebrew word. The word for daddy is Abba. You go to Israel right now and you go through ju- the streets of Jerusalem and you can see parents walking with their little ones or st- the, some of the ones will be, little ones will be in strollers and you'll hear them say, Abba, Abba, and, th- and they're saying, Daddy, Daddy, Emma is Mama, and we were there, we, we, I remember last one of the times we were there, we picked up a little bib that says, I, heart, you know love, Abba. Right on, loved it. And basically, we're God's children and we all have that little bib on, okay? And we love our Father in heaven, right? Now, let's look at the first characteristic of a children, of child of God. First of all, though we're not sinless, we do sin less. And that's what verses... Um, Well, 4 through 18 are telling us, we're not going to be sinless, but we are going to sin less because we are God's children. Verses 6 through 9, let's look. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Verse 9, no one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed, that is God's seed, abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, reading this without any extra help you may reach the wrong conclusion that it is saying that if you're really born of God you will never sin and all of us who are honest would then have to come to the conclusion that what we're not saved but we also have to remember that at the beginning of the letter in chapter 1 as we're looking at verses 8 9 and 10 it tells us that if we say we have no sin we are what liars and we're deceiving ourselves and we're even making God out to be a liar and it is addressed to people who are saved, obviously, based on verse 8 of chapter 1. People who are saved will sin. So that contradicting what we just read, which says, It says in verse 6, no one who abides in him sins, and no one who sins has seen him or even known him. No, we just have to understand that at this point, our English translation is a little bit weak, okay? And that's where I get to come alongside. I get to help a little, and I get to tell you The good news is the Greek says, okay? Generally, when I say the Greek says, I don't know whether it's good news or not, but this is good news. Because the Greek says, no one, and see, in our English, we have to use a whole lot of words. We burn a lot of words to say what you can say with one word in Greek. The Greek says, no one who continues to go on sinning is really what it's saying. That's what practicing sin means, No one who continues to go on sinning is really abiding in him. No one who sins, and that means, again, that's continuing to go on sinning, has seen him or knows him. And the idea is not, well, once you're saved, you do sin now and then continually. No, it means no one is going to start practicing to sin. Does that make more sense? You're not going to start practicing to sin. All our kids are doing music. We have one on the cello, one on the flute, one on the piano and guitar, and now they're all saying they wanna take piano. And you know, sometimes, there's quite an orchestra going on at our house. But they all practice. Now they practice, and it's amazing. I hadn't been home when they practice, and so I hadn't, my oldest is uh, playing the cello. Well, they're all just great, they really are. But my oldest was playing the cello. I hadn't heard her play in a number of months. And um, I heard her the other day and I went, on my day off and I went running in the room and I said, honey, this is just awesome. It's awesome. You have improved, and she was good before, but she's improved 50% since I heard her last. Why? Because she is very diligent when it comes to her practicing. So is my other daughter. And so is our son if we tell him to. I can remember my mom. Probably the only thing we ever fought about was my piano practice. You know, I had 13 or 14 years of piano lessons, and I had to practice all the time. And she would, someday you're going to thank me for this. Thanks, Mom. Anyway, you practice in order to get better at something, right? And the Bible is saying nobody who's born of God is going to practice their sin. I don't want to. I mean, I don't know any Christians that are saying, I want to get better at doing this. I want to get better at lying. I want to get better at cheating. I want to get better at immoral thoughts. I want to get better at coveting what other people have. Does anybody want to do that? No. See, that's one of the evidences that we are saved. And I know I've said that before. I just have to keep saying that because... Whenever we sin, there is so much that comes along with it in terms of feeling guilty and and shame and all this other stuff. And you just have to understand that being a Christian doesn't mean you're sinless, but it does mean that there is now a new thing going on inside of you where you will never be comfortable sinning again. Isn't that nice? Because that is evidence, evidence that you're born again. You will never be comfortable sinning again. And that's why a backslidden Christian is so miserable because they don't fit into the world anymore and they don't fit into God's plan anymore because they're just kind of in between and they're miserable. They're not at home at church. They're not at home in the world. So you got to get in. Come on back. Come in where you're going to be comfy. Now, reading on, verse um, 8 The one who practices sin, okay, I think we understand that, is of the devil, not saved, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for for this purpose that he might what? Destroy the works of the devil. And so we see verses 5 and 8 tied together. We see the two purposes for Jesus coming into the world. Number one, that he might take away sins he appeared in order that he might take away sins and secondly in verse 8 he appeared for this reason that he might destroy the works of the devil and that's not just in our sin in our sinful past but even in our present he wants to destroy Satan's hold in our lives and in the future he's going to set up his kingdom on this earth and he's going to destroy all evil and set up a kingdom of righteousness Verse 9, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed, that is, God's seed abides in him and he cannot sin. You cannot go on sinning, the Greek says, because you are born of God. So God's seed is in us. We have been born of God. We now have our partaker's The apostle Peter says, we are partakers of the divine nature, actually, literally. God shares, 2 Peter 1, 4, his nature with us. No we are not little gods, that's not what we mean, but we mean that God has given us his very own life. His life is now in us. The seed of life is in us we have been given an eternal life that we will share with God forever and ever and ever. I just love it, don't you? Now the book of Romans talks a lot about this new life that we have and if it's okay with you, I would like to go to the book of Romans at this point just for a minute because I want us to just see what it means to, to have God's seed in us. We have been given when we came to Christ a brand new nature. Remember it says, you might wanna write this down if you don't remember it already, But the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. The Greek actually says, if anyone is in Christ, he or she, you're a new species, it says. Oh, the old things have passed away and everything's become new. You're a new species, You're not just homo sapien anymore. You're not just human anymore. You are this new creation of Jesus Christ, a brand new creation, a whole different species. That's how real God sees the change that has happened in you. A lot of times we just don't see it. Now, the Bible says in Romans chapter 6 that we have died to sin. Baptism symbolizes that. It doesn't cause it. As we are above the waters, one life, we go under the water, and in Jewish understanding at the time of Christ and the apostle Paul to go underwater meant they was considered to die. Come up out of the water was a new life, another life. And so we understand that we are baptized, and it speaks of a death and a resurrection in Christ. See, we do have that symbol. We do have a little funeral service, so to speak, when we're baptized in Christ. But I don't think a lot of us understand really what has happened. The Bible says when you came to Jesus Christ, now you no longer have to respond to sin. When sin comes knocking at the door, you don't have to answer the door. Do you really feel like when your door bell rings, you have to answer the door? I mean, maybe some of you are just so nice. You feel compelled to do that. You are very sweet, some of you are, and you would probably. The phone rings, do you always feel like you have to answer the phone? You don't have to, your phone vibrates. Let it go to voicemail. When Jesus comes into your life, he now gives you the right, the authority, the power to be able to say no to sin. You don't have to answer the door. You don't have to answer the phone. I've used the illustration before that it's much like having an, an employer that you cannot live with. They, they're calling you all hours of the day and night. They're making you work overtime all the time and, and, you, and, and you've got a phone and you've got a pager and you've got, you know, all the electronics. You look like NORAD as you walk around, you know? <laughs> Always in communication and finally you get a new job and it's just like the dream. Oh, you have weekends off you're working 9 to 5 you have a, a lunch break it's like what is this you get a holiday but in the middle of the night your cell phone rings and you go to answer it because you're so used to answering the old employer and when he goes I'm telling you what are you doing why aren't you here whoa, 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 whoa. come down here right now and your first inclination out of habit out of life out of Abuse almost is that, whoa, I got to, I got to, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I don't even work for you anymore. I don't have to do what you tell me to do anymore. I've got a new job with benefits. (laughs) See, it's that way with the Christian life. I'm going to read the text in a minute, but I'm just kind of giving you, giving you the understanding before we do. See, the devil is the old employer, and we were his slaves, Jesus Christ is coming and says, look, I have got something for you. And talk about Benny's. Talk about life insurance. (laughs) You'll never die. I will take care of you, all your needs. I love you. You're not just an employee to me. You're not a slave. In fact, I want to make you part of the business. Well, we accept. We come on. And then all of a sudden, the phone rings and out of habit, out of conditioning, out of all that stuff, we answer and we have this, oh, but we've got to remember, we don't work for him anymore, amen? Amen. We don't have to do what he says anymore. Now you could, you're free to, right? But you're crazy too. But we can all understand how it happens, but you don't have to anymore temptation comes. The devil says, hey, I want you to do this right now. Come on. Ooh, ooh. You got you to think this. You got to act that way. You got to do this. And we forget. Oh, wait a minute. I forget. We forget how it may hurt. We forget how, what it could do to us. Okay, we forget. Does that mean that we are fired from our new job? No. It means you lose sleep, right? You're not fired. You're still covered. You still got all the benefits. You just have to... Realize you don't serve that master anymore. You don't work for them anymore. Is this clear? Yes. Okay, now look at what it says in Romans chapter 6. How does this happen to us? Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, having been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Is that clear? you understand what he's saying? Remember what I said about baptism? How it's a symbol of our new life in Christ and we've been risen with Christ. We have a new nature now. All right. For if we had become united with him in the likeness of his death, and the if isn't like, well, did it really happen? It's, it's, um, it should be translated for since we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that, read with me, verse 6, the very last line, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. In other words, sin doesn't gonna be, isn't going to be the master, the king, the boss, the Lord of your life anymore. Verse 7, read out loud, for he who has died is freed from sin. You're free. You do not have to answer the door. You don't have to pick up the phone, you don't have to answer your cell phone, you don't have to return the email, you can block it and say, I don't want this anymore. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead is never to die again, death no longer has any master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God, even so now, he says, even so. You consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, verse 12, would you read with me? Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. How do we let sin reign? By obeying its strong desires. The word lust doesn't mean thinking about a guy or a gal in a way that you shouldn't. The word lust is the word epithumia, which means a strong desire. It could be good or bad. But he's saying there are wrong, bad desires. These wrong desires, and we know what they are because we know the word of God. We know the Holy Spirit taps us on the shoulder and goes, oh, don't go there. Don't do that. We know the wrong desires. And he says, don't let sin reign by obeying the sinful lusts of your flesh.
0: You're now with Unity in Christ, powered by Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to hear from you. If you have any comments or testimony that you want to share with us, please email it to askhsgm at gmail.com. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts. You can easily play this week's or past week's program, or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Please stay tuned as we are following a program that guides us to know what ethics Christians should hold, titled Christian Ethics.
2: Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston with Christian Ethics. For the last decade, Hollywood produced a lot of movies that focused on human cloning. One of these movies was called The Island, which was released about 10 years ago, back in 2005, and had a very shocking storyline. The film portrayed an unethical society in which human clones were created and confined by a company to be used for replacing the body parts of the original person who was either terminally ill, aging, or injured. The concept of human cloning is no longer the stuff of science fiction movies. In 1996, when Dolly was cloned through somatic cell cloning, a process which replaces the nucleus of an unfertilized oocyte with a somatic cell nucleus to produce a genetically identical clone. The technique was no longer only a thing of the movies or novels, but now a thing of reality. And this issue brought about a lot of political and ethical controversies. Human cloning refers to the actual cloning, of human somatic cells to produce children or clone humans for the purpose of biomedical research. Scientists had hoped that human somatic cell cloning would allow infertile couples to have children. They also claimed that people who have defects in their body could live a normal life free of defects through somatic cell cloning. The claims by scientists that these techniques can help those in need are a fact to some degree However, the issue of somatic cell cloning isn't a simple matter of taking the needed cells and cloning them. In 2001, American scientists made the first human somatic cell clone embryos. However, when these cloned embryos reached the six-cell stage, they all died or stopped dividing. After this, many countries, including the United States, banned human somatic cell cloning. Yet, the debate about somatic cell cloning is still a hot topic. Numerous scientists believe that human somatic cell cloning would lead to the ultimate cure for most if not all diseases, decreasing human suffering and pain from illnesses. Today in Christian Ethics we will discuss cell cloning in more detail. Somatic cell cloning uses the existing human cells nuclear material that is the donor cells nucleus to replace the nucleus of an oocyte, also known as the egg, which either lost its nucleus or has its nucleus disabled. Eggs that have been modified are implanted in the womb of the surrogate to be grown into a cloned baby. This is how the cloned person would have the identical DNA as the donor. Therefore the cell donor and the cloned baby would only be different in age but would technically be identical twins. This is called asexual somatic cell cloning. So, what is the purpose of cloning human somatic cells like this? First, with the cloning of somatic cells, infertile couples can have children who are genetically like them. Also, if the children is endangered of being born with a genetic illness, somatic cell cloning can mend and replace the problem. Moreover, for those who are alive and need a new organ, an ideal organ can be born. By cloning dead or dying spouses or relatives, one could continue in their relationships. And society could even clone people with higher intellect, talent, and good looks as wanted. Now, after hearing these reasons, can you see the potential issues with cloning? The purposes of somatic cell cloning focus on the sacrifice of the cloned human to benefit the recipient and society in general. Then what happens to the welfare of cloned humans? Are they considered human, or are they expendable? In the case of animal studies, cloning somatic cells result in a 90% death rate. Furthermore, the surviving cloned animals have a high chance of having deformities or being crippled. If a somatic cell cloned human is observed to be growing in a deformed or crippled state in the womb, most of the cloned babies would be aborted. If they weren't aborted, and instead born and raised, what would the fate of these children be? Whatever the purposes of somatic cell cloning are, there can be no justification for the death of numerous embryos and infants to produce one cloned human. We can all agree that it is sad to have a dying spouse or a relative, but to clone them and continue to live with them by your side for that reason is a terrible idea if you think about it a bit more. Clone people will suffer through emotional and psychological problems associated with their identity and individuality. Clone children aren't a gift from God, but rather, products of a human. Now scientists are trying to go beyond human limits and deal with creating life, sitting in place of God. Human cloning is clearly wrong in the view of the sanctity of life and the sovereignty of God. Some state that somatic cell cloning should be permitted for the purposes of biomedical research. They reason that such research would be beneficial as we could potentially gain important knowledge regarding fetal development and genetic interactions to help cure potential illnesses and disorders. But in order to achieve such results in research, many human embryos must be sacrificed. And there isn't really any evidence showing that such medical research in this field would contribute to human health and happiness. It's mostly just speculations from experience. Some scientists say that because the human embryo isn't fully human, it is justifiable to use human embryos in scientific research to reduce human suffering from illnesses. They tell us not to think of embryos as being sacrificed, but rather used to enhance the quality of human life, Just because something is possible does not mean that it is justifiable. Although human cloning can be an interesting topic to deal with in science fiction movies, it violates biblical principles. All people should not only recognize the ethical issues and limits on the matter of life and death, but also respect the principles of the dignity of life. It is fine to improve the quality of life by reducing pain and suffering, But sacrificing other people to achieve such goals is wrong. This concludes this week's episode of Christian Ethics. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
3: I have not much to offer you, not near. What you deserve, but still I come because Your cross has placed in me my worth. Oh Christ, my King of sympathy, whose wounds secure my peace. Grace extends to call me friend Your mercy sets me free And I know I'm weak I know I'm unworthy to call upon Your name But because of grace Because of Your mercy I still hear your shade I can't explain this kind of love
0: Cushing's life did not have a sudden change But he began to kneel before God and seek His will and ask for forgiveness And from this he begins to experience God's gracious comfort and peace And recovers his first love for Him He then realizes living as a true Christian is relying on the perfect God Cushing realized that God had a deeper will for him when he took away his voice And every day he kneeled down and prayed for what his will was From this moment on, he heard a very quiet voice ringing in his heart to write hymns. Because he has never written a hymn ever before in his life, he did not have complete confidence if this was a heart given to him directly from God. However, the more he prayed, he received a stronger calling to write hymns and he could not disobey to this, and picked up a pen and began to write lyrics on a piece of paper. He picked up a pen, but he did not have any kind of inspiration or talent, but obeyed. He meditated on the word continuously, searched his will, and God poured him with the inspiration and talent he never had. And he then began to write a hymn that began like this. Under his wings I am safely abiding. Though the night deepens and tempests are wild, still I can trust him. I know he will keep me. He has redeemed me and I am his child. Under his wings, under his wings. Who from him his love can sever? Under his wings my soul shall abide safely abide forever. This hymn Under his wings I'm safely abiding was written from one of his sermons he preached to his church based off the scriptures of Psalm chapter 17 verse 8 that reads Keep me as the apple of your eye hide me in the shadow of your wings. He meditated on that sermon he preached and easily he was able to write the complete verse. He knew exactly what God wanted. And when he wholeheartedly followed it, he was able to confess with his lips, Under his wings, I am safely abiding. William Cushing goes through the devastation of loving his wife and voice. But God restores his life by giving him the ultimate peace and satisfaction. And as Cushing obeyed and lived out by faith, he was able to graciously write hymns. They say that there are 300 hymns that William Cushing wrote over the time period of his life. We as people will never be able to completely understand God's will. Sometimes His plans will never appear to look good to our own eyes. It may even seem like a curse. However, God is good. Even through all of that, He will reveal His glory. What are the true conditions of praise? It is not the peace and satisfaction that my conditions provide to me. The true conditions of praise is the mere fact that God is my God. Because He is my God, through any situation I am able to praise Him for His love and goodness. And through this, His glory will be revealed. I hope that our heart and soul listeners may be able to praise God through any given circumstance as we will now wrap up today's program. Thank you for listening as it has been my pleasure and God bless.
3: If my Lord he will keep me he has redeemed me and I am his child under his wings under his wings who from